Hello, and welcome to SLP Full Disclosure. I am your host, Jennifer Martin, and joining me is our amazing producer, who has newly quaffed hair, Jonathan Carey. <laughs> Hello, how's it going? Good. You you surprised me. You didn't you didn't talk to me beforehand about you cutting your hair. <laughs> I didn't and run so, it by you. <laughs> no, you did not. We, we did not discuss this before you made that choice. But. You know, actually, I think the same day I got it cut was that same day I sent you the picture of that guy that had that super long hair. So now I was like, this is my new hairstyle. <laughs> oh, so you were trying to. I was trolling you. You were trolling me. <laughs> per usual. All right. We have a great show today and a very cool guest um, for those SLPs out there that are working with adults or interested in working with adults in medical setting um, or just interested in in that topic. Um, she is a wealth of knowledge. Today we have Angela Ziegler and Angela began her professional career as a speech language pathologist in 2011. And she worked in a series of skilled nursing facilities, including a dedicated long-term pediatrics wing. She did, then briefly worked with kids in home health and school settings, but realized that pediatrics was not her calling and her heart lies in adult neurological disorders. She has worked at Orlando Regional Medical Center for nearly nine years in all settings, including acute care, inpatient rehabilitation, and outpatient care, working with patients and their families through challenging diagnoses, such as traumatic brain injury, stroke, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injuries, and other diseases. In 2007, Angela was recruited by Dr. Janet Whiteside to the UCF Communication Disorders Clinic as an adjunct clinical instructor after a chance encounter at a conference in Tampa. Angela has been deeply touched by aphasia, stroke, head and neck cancer, and brain injury in both her professional life and her personal life as well. She continues to work at both UCF and the Orlando Regional Medical Center, treating patients and teaching graduate students and on top of that, she began her private practice in 2021 to continue to work with families through education and support. On a personal note, Angela has been married to her husband, Tim, for 17 years, and they have four daughters. So welcome to Angela. Angela Ziegler, I am so happy that you're joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I We do so much that I feel like is very schools based on the podcast and just a lot of information for those working with pediatrics, but there are many, many SLPs that do not work with pediatrics, you being one of them. And so I really, <laughs> yes, for, which, which I'm sure you can tell us about that too, but, um, but I am so glad that you are here with all of your adult expertise, because this is a huge area within our field. And I want to make sure that people have some of your great information. Thank you. Yeah, so I was sharing it. Yes. <laughs> well, and again, and it is it is great. You you are uh, definitely well versed in the adult uh, setting. So, before we get into it, though, I always like to just know what led to you wanting to become a speech pathologist, and how did you get to where you are right now in your professional journey? Yeah. So I um, I started out as a travel agent. 
And I was in the air on September 11th, flying home from Alaska and realized when I got back to the office a week later that if I was going to make a career out of this, I couldn't handle the ups and downs that come with the economy and all the things that happen. And so around that time, I started looking at fields to go into, did all kinds of research on, you know, like skills assessments and personality assessments and speech pathologists just kept coming up. Um, and so I started researching and I did some job shadowing because I'm not one to jump into something huge without doing my research first and thought this is something I could do. So started going to UCF, the University of Central Florida here in Orlando, and I thought I was going to work with kids on Arctic. I really thought my calling was ours. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Turns and out so, that's not the case. No, like not at all. And, and I mean, kids are great. I've got three of my own. They're fabulous. Um, I just don't really work well with them. And so when I was in my grad program, I was expressing this concern to one of my mentors. Her name's uh, Dr. Janet Whiteside. She's a huge leader in the field of aphasia. And she is just, she's an amazing human being. She's very intimidating to those who don't know her very well because she's so brilliant. But one day she come, came over to me and she said, Angela, you need to come over to the aphasia house that I'm building and you need to take part in our intensive program. You are built for working with people who've had brain injuries. And I was like, I'll try. Okay. And so I went over and I started working with her and I fell in love. My first client that I had that was an adult was a gentleman who'd had a brain injury from a fall and just super classic, classic, right frontal, verbose, tangential, all of that. And I was like, give me more of that. And so after I graduated, I worked in some nursing homes as my CF. And then about a year after I got my C's, I started working at Orlando Regional Medical Center in their rehabilitation unit. And since then, I've cross-trained to outpatient and acute care. The only area that is not within my wheelhouse for, or for um, acute and inpatient is MBSs. I stick to everything else. Um, and I also work at UCF as an instructor in the clinic um, at the aphasia house that I happen to be in the first cohort of students to practice. So it's all kind of come full circle. And I just I love what I'm doing. And I started a private practice in the process of all this. <laughs> so A, you're bored and yeah, don't have no, enough going totally on. And <laughs> <laughs> Nothing going on. And it sounds like you never did target that R that you originally thought? Well, actually I did. I, um, I did some work with peds after I had my third daughter, I stayed home for about a year and I just I really wanted to start working again and wanted to be on my schedule. And one of my friends was doing home health for a peds company. She's like, just, just come do a few kids and got roped into way more than that, but that's a different story for a different day. And I had these kids that were really challenging R's. And we rehabbed, like rehabbed, we remediated it. And it was so cool. But I still, like, after about a year of doing that, I said, I can't, like, I can't. I, I need to save my, my patience and my playfulness and my sanity for when I get home for my own kids. Yeah, that definitely so, is tricky balance when you have yeah. your own kids at home. Well, and yeah. I love what you, so I love nothing more than a full circle moment. I just feel like those are 
they bring me such joy when I, it's like, yes, it came full circle, but I'm thinking it's, and I, that one of my favorite, I love asking just what led you to this role, because it's very interesting that many times it wasn't on somebody's radar. And you know, it's, I always say life is what happens when you're busy making plans. So you were on your plan, nine 11 happened, completely changed plan for many people, but and it, it is interesting too, how many people come to this field after taking a test or something that says you would be really great at this. So had you even heard of the profession really before it said that you should become one? I had, and this is really, really funny. So, and I'm, I'm very, very open about this. When I started college, when I was 18, I was not ready for college. I was ready for freedom and I was ready to have a good time. (laughs) And my grades reflected that. (laughs) And the university said, well, maybe come back when you're more ready for this or you're more mature or, you know, evolved or something. And I was working at Best Buy and two people that I worked with at Best Buy in customer service, this is way, way back, like 1996, they were in the program to become speech pathologists. And I work with one of those guys now. No, I swear to you. I swear. Okay. Yes. That's yeah. Funny. He and I worked together at Best Buy in 1996 to 1999. And now we work together again. And were you like so many of the questions that I'm sure you get and I get is what is a speech pathologist? What do you do? What is that? So did it, did they, did you have to have them explain the whole field to you at that time? Oh yeah. yeah. I had no idea what they were doing. I was like, what is this thing? Like, what are you talking about? And they, um, they both ended up working with adults as well, which I thought was really, really cool. So I had a little bit of an understanding. I mean, like brief yeah. hanging out at customer yeah. service in between customers, <laughs> understanding, not like, Hey, let me borrow your textbook yeah. and read up on it. Um, so to come and, you know, end up working with these people who knew me way, way back before this was ever on my radar, it is just another full circle moment. Yeah. That sounds like it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just curious also, because, you know, you enter into this world of aphasia and TBI when you first walked into that world, how, confident did you initially feel? And the reason I ask this is because I feel like so many times I talk to new grads or people that they think they have to be, well, I don't know it well enough to do it. I said, but that's how you're going to learn it by doing it. So did you walk in thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing and learn as you went, or did you have a pretty good base? I had no idea. Okay. (laughs) No idea. Dr. Whiteside was a huge guide for me in the initial discovery of aphasia and traumatic brain injury. Um, I really, really, truly had no concept of what aphasia really was beyond what I learned in my aphasia class. How to have a conversation with a person who has aphasia and make it meaningful and, and have them really, truly express what's on their mind I did not have that skill set. I did not have that that ability to do with my eyes closed and my hands tied, by, tied behind my back like I do now. Um, so that was my first, you know, um, teaching moment was in grad school when they asked me to participate in that program. And then my clinical fellowship year was at a skilled nursing facility that had like 450 beds and a pediatrics wing. 
And there were six other speech therapists there of varying degrees of experience from CF all the way to 15 years experience. And just being in this office that's smaller than my closet with six women who were so just well-versed in what they were doing, that was really where I learned the bulk of my strategies, um, managing just all the challenges that come up, um, and then just all the things that happen beyond our job of doing speech therapy, documentation, dealing with management, dealing with nursing, family, all of that. It, that I really learned most of it hands-on. Yeah. And hands on and from all of these mentors who I've been just so lucky, lucky to be surrounded by. We'll be right back to our interview. Take a moment to stretch your legs, but don't go anywhere because we want to talk to you about our podcast partner, Med Travelers. Med Travelers is an industry leader in allied travel career opportunities for a reason. Featuring exclusive jobs at top-tier facilities across the United States, higher earning potential, W-2 employee status, and a flexible schedule, Med Travelers is your advocate for career success. Make sure to visit medtravelers.com to discover how Med Travelers can help drive your career forward. Again, go to medtravelers.com to start your travel journey today. And now back to the show. Now, I know there may not be an average patient. I'm sure there's no two that are alike. There's snowflakes. But when you're thinking about who, about maybe what is your most typical, the most typical characteristics of the patients you see, what, what does that look like? So it really depends on where I'm seeing them. Um, because I'm both at the UCF Communication Disorders Clinic as a clinical instructor, and I'm at ORMC as a PRN therapist, it really varies. So in the hospital, we're seeing people anywhere from 10 days to 10 or 12 weeks post-injury, and they're usually still pretty strongly in a place of trauma because they are just wrapping their heads around whatever the event is that's just happened. Um, and then over at the clinic, we're typically seeing patients who are usually at least three or four months post-stroke or post-injury. Um, but right now I have a guy who's 10 years post-TBI. I have um, another guy who's seven years post-stroke and we we just found some major, major success with an AEC device for him to the point where he's now more effectively communicating with his wife. Um, so I'm seeing people literally all over the spectrum. There's really no one particular like average client or average patient. Um, we're seeing people anywhere from ages 12 to, I think I had a guy the other day is 93. Wow. I mean, and everything in between. Well, and I'm curious, as you said, I, I really like the, the idea that you see them right away, you know, 10 days out. And, and like you said, that's probably a time where they're just a lot of shock, a lot of grief, still trying to make mm -hmm. sense of how much their life is going to change. And at that time, you don't know how much, or they don't know how much they're going to improve or what's going to change. But then you see them years later. Do the ones that you are seeing in the clinic later help keep you motivated for those at the very beginning knowing, okay, this does get better versus seeing them 
if they were all 10 days out and you saw them that initial period and then they go off and you think, well, I hope everything's okay. Yeah, it, it really, really does. And it really colors a lot of my practice when I'm in rehab, where I'll say to somebody, especially these, you know, recently retired guys who have strokes within like six months of retirement, they, their worlds literally have come crashing down around them. And a lot of times I just have to stop all the therapy and look at them and say two rules. Number one, no more strokes. Number two, <laughs> don't give up. Do not stop working ever. Mm -hmm. You keep doing those two things and you will always make gains. Even 10 years from now, you can make gains as long as there's no more neurological changes and you don't give up. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, it's one of those things that nobody's really told them necessarily, or if they have, they were just in such a place of shock or anxiety, or they were in a place of just being totally out of it from how sick they were. They couldn't hear the message and internalize the message. So that's the message I give to a lot of times the people in inpatient. For the clinic, a lot of times, the message I give those people is keep working. Don't give up. You have to keep working. Just keep going. Stay positive, stay focused, and we're going to help you make some changes. Yeah, so just little, like, little incremental... <laughs> You're not going to have a stroke. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. step one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't do that. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's so, because I, I do, I had it when I first started, I was briefly with adults before moving to peds and, you know, there's so many people that I work with post-stroke that now I think I want to call them and say, I'm so sorry. I did because I did not have oh. the mentorship that you did. I, I yeah. did not. So but I just remember vividly, just like you said, there was people that had just retired and they were starting out on the adventures and they were going to start traveling and things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, nope, not today. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, I think that's such an important message that just this will get better. Even if it's yeah. slow, it's, yep. you will get better. Yeah. My, the client that I saw the other day, I, I had to look at him at one point where he crossed his arms and he just was like furrowed brow going, mm-mm, mm-mm. And I stopped everything and I wrote in big, bold letters on a piece of paper, progress, not perfection. Mm. Yeah. Because that's all we can do. Yeah. And if we go into it with a perfectionist mindset, none of us are going to make any changes, especially as speech therapists, like the worst offenders of perfectionism, like ever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I say it to my students yes. constantly. I'm like, listen, I'm not going for perfection here. Yeah. I want you to show me that you're making changes and you're making gains and you're growing because that's all we can ask for. We can't ask for perfection. Yeah. Not even of ourselves. Yes. And you're exactly right. I don't know. I'm sure this happens to other professions too, but I think it does happen mm -hmm. a lot where it's, that's why I asked in the beginning too, did you feel, how confident did you feel? Because it's like, no, 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 no. You're not going to ever yeah. feel like you've got this completely dialed in. You'll always, oh, I mean, sure. you. Oh yeah. The first time I had a, a group of PPA clients, primary progressive aphasia clients slid my way. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's not my wheelhouse. I do strokes and brain injuries. And they're like, no, no, no. You do PPA now too. And I was like, okay, I guess I do. And let's figure this out. And we did. And we helped these folks find just a, a way 
to continue communicating throughout the process of their disease mm -hmm. and give them some, some tools and some strategies and train their families how to, you know, how to participate in it and be active participants and not just bystanders. Yeah. And then it feels like you're doing something. You're, yeah. you know, when you're being proactive and doing something, I think that also can help you feel like, even if it's not a huge sweeping change, but it's like incremental, I'm actively yeah. doing something towards making change. Yeah. And, you know, I say to my students a lot, especially regarding the, the clients that have been around for a longer period of time that are much longer post-injury, mm -hmm. I'll say to them, we're moving grains of sand. We're not moving mountains. But you move enough grains of sand, you're going to build yourself a little mountain. So stick with it and just pay attention to the small changes because they really, really do add up. You need to make posters. You know, remember the, right? the, the cat with the tree hanging there? Yeah, See, I mean, <laughs> I love, all, I love, the, but these are great words of wisdom that I think are good reminders for all of us, including your yeah. patients. So I'm curious. So you do um, work with aphasia, but also with, um, traumatic brain injury, mm -hmm. what percentage, and again, I know it's not probably like 50, 50, but would you say the vast majority are aphasia and a handful of TBI, or does it just depend? You know, it just depends because so many strokes are right CVAs. Mm -hmm. So we don't have the aphasia except for one of my clients, um, who is true right brain blog, um, language dominant. So he's a right CVA plus pure textbook brokers. It is just one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Um, and it's very, very rare, but I would say half of the strokes that we see are right CBAs. And then maybe about half of our patients are TBI. At the clinic, I think I see maybe like two thirds aphasia plus PPA and a few other diagnoses. And then about a third of my clients there are TBI. And um, I, I think that is such a fascinating diagnosis. The one, you know, the group, the small handful I've worked with, what ages are your patients? So is that where the youngest is 12 and mm -hmm. for TBI? Okay. So the TBI, yeah. you'll start seeing them earliest 12 or yeah. younger or no, do you have a cutout? 12 is the earliest we can accept because okay. of licensure. That's gotcha. what we're licensed to see. Okay. And then all the yeah. way up to 99. Yeah. <laughs> I had a guy one time who was like 95 and he was ripped. He was so buff. I had never seen anything like it. And he was one of the most motivated patients I'd ever had ever. It was amazing to watch this man go. Well, if he's still ripped at 95, we know he's motivated, right? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that's, uh, that's hard to be ripped when you're younger, much less yeah. as you get older. So good for him. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. And so how, about how long when you're speaking of the hospital experience, mm -hmm. so when you, you know, you see them, they're about 10 days post injury, how long do you typically work with them? in the hospital before they move on to inpatient or home or outpatient or home? So we're seeing my primary location at the hospital is inpatient rehab. So okay. we're receiving them about anywhere from 10 days gotcha. to 12 weeks. I mean, however long they've been in, you know, ICU or wherever they were. Yeah. Um, and 
we're seeing, we typically have patients there anywhere from like seven days to three weeks. Okay. It just depends on what the national average is. We aim for that with our patient care, but it also depends on what, what their needs are as well. And so, you know, there are some patients who've stayed much, much longer and there's others who have just hightailed it out of there really quickly because they've made the progress that they needed to, to get home safely. And so when I'm thinking like, gosh, seven days, it feels like such a short period of time or even three weeks feels short. How, what are, what are you, is your goal as an SLP during that time? What are you trying to accomplish before they leave to go home? So speaking for myself only, I can't speak for what any of my colleagues who see, you know, any of their patients and, and remembering I am parents. So I'm hopping in there weekends, afternoons, days that I'm off from the university. It just really, my, my time there really varies. And so my goal is to help the core therapists meet their goals and at the same time, help identify what the client or what the patient's goals are. So there's a lot of times where patients will want to get back outside. Okay, great. Let's do that. We'll get you outside and we'll do speech therapy out there. Um, there's other times where I notice that they're going to be discharged very soon. We need to work on some writing. So we do a lot of biographical writing, name, address, phone number, birth date, email address, family members, um, understanding what their medications are, remembering what their medications are, um, just anything that could be functional for them. That's my goal. There's times where if we're working on, say, for example, dysarthria and the patient's goal requires them to speak so as to be intelligible at a distance of like six feet, I'll stand at the foot of their bed and I'll say, okay, I'm going to be your maid. You tell me how to clean up your room, but I need to hear you. Okay. So there's this big stack of sheets and towels over here. Where do you want me to put them? Hmm. And they have to say, put them in the cabinet or put them in the bathroom. So anything that's functional for that particular client, I try to hone in on pretty quickly. Um, I, just being totally honest it is one of my gifts as a human is being able to identify those needs pretty quickly and what are on people's minds, whether they're able to discuss it or not. I'm not always right, but I'm right a good chunk of the time. And so helping them figure that out and then getting started with that is always something that's important to me. Well, and I imagine it's even more so important, important because it sounds like I, I remember I did a brief stint in inpatient and I felt like they were there for a long time. So I'm thinking three weeks and I know that now it's just getting harder with reimbursement for them to stay for any period of time. So it's really, yeah. we got to get in and pack a punch for the time that we've got. Yeah. So I think the, 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 your gift is serving your patients well, because it really is like, we need to figure out the most practical ways to help you because yeah. very soon you're going to be home. Um, very soon, like freakishly soon for some family members who just a lot of times when they find out the discharge plans, they're very surprised and immediately start asking, well, we need more time. We need more time. And our answer is typically, well, hold on. We don't know how much progress is going to be made in this yeah. predicted time frame. So let's get closer to that date before we make any, you know, changes to that plan, because you would be surprised at how much progress a person can make in a week. 
Yeah, no, you're right. And it really, that is a good reminder that it's the, the brain is amazing and the way that it's able and that it can heal and does heal is, Mm -hmm. is will never stop being fascinating to me. And I'm sure every day to you and you see it all the time. So I love it. Yeah. I explain it to people a lot of times, like, and this is for us older folks who have a little bit of silver here is remembering the um, card catalogs in a library and our brains are organized like a card catalog where you might find information about say trees in like 20 different pockets and you just have to access it differently. And a couple of those drawers got damaged from the stroke or the brain injury and they're disorganized and the cards are maybe on the floor or they're shoved into the wrong spot or maybe they got destroyed somehow. But it's our job to help reorganize that information in an effective and efficient way so that you can access it more easily. That's a great way to think about it. Um, what, what, is, can it happen to asking for a friend? Does this also apply for non-stroke? <laughs> because uh, I'm thinking <laughs> my card catalog has uh, been disorganized for a long time. And I don't know if it's actually ever been organized. So <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's just organized in your way. You know? It's organized piles. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I understand that very, very much. Yeah. So, so for example, if I've got somebody who's a mechanic or I've got somebody who's an attorney or I have somebody who's a homemaker or somebody who's a truck driver. I always try to frame things around what they know in their line of thinking. So, you know, it's like saying to a mechanic, Hey, your engine got taken apart a little bit, Mm. but it's not too, too bad. We've got some experts here who are going to help you put it back together, but you do have to do some of the work as well. Yeah, that's great. So it goes just back to meeting them where they are. Yes, and, we're, and that's the key because yeah. if they don't understand or it doesn't, they can't make relate to it or don't have that buy-in, then it's going to be really hard to keep them motivated Absolutely. throughout that project process. So, yep. well, and I want to go back to aphasia and just pick your brain a little bit too, because yeah. I know a lot has probably changed since I worked with, um, <laughs> since I need to, one of my patients that I now need to apologize to, um, is what is your preferred method of assessment when you're, and whether that's in the clinic or an inpatient? And I'm also curious is to, you know, what percentage or not what percentage, but how do you incorporate the formal pieces, but also the informal pieces to get the most information? Yeah. So one of my favorite things to do is a clock drawing. Um, you get a lot of really good information from that about listening to multi-step instructions and that auditory comprehension piece. You get a lot of good information about left or right neglect, um, organization. You can watch how they do it. If they do the 12, six, three, nine, and then fill in the rest of the numbers, or they just start going all the way around. Um, it really gives a lot of good information. There's tons of articles and books written on the importance of a clock drawing and what it can do for a person's recovery and what information it can give. Um, I really like the old standby WAB, the Western aphasia battery. Um, It hits almost all the areas that are necessary. It's not as in depth as like the CAT, which is, I can't remember what the C stands for, aphasia test, but it's called the CAT. Um, But it, it, that's a much longer test. It takes an hour and a half or wow. so to fully administer from one end to the next. And when you've got one hour, 
you've got to be really effective with your time. So um, I typically will do all of the WAB part one, at least portions of part two. I really appreciate the, um, the clock drawing. And then I'm always going to ask for a writing sample because I want to see what's happening with that. We can find perseveration with that by superfluous lines, um, missing information such as not crossing your T's or dotting your I's. Um, you're going to find just a lot of good information about a person's ability to write. And that is, I think, oftentimes a really unfortunately overlooked part of aphasia rehab is concerning the dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, um, all of those things that are just, they're not as, they're not as tangible in their immediate presentation. Because you can walk into a room and know whether or not somebody has aphasia mm -hmm. within the first 10 seconds, but you got to dig in order to get to the other stuff. Yeah, that's a great reminder because even as I was asking the question, I was not thinking about writing, but once you started yeah. saying how much value and what information you get, because you're right, there's some people that present really functional and wow, they're doing great, you know, whoa. Mm -hmm. And then you just have to find that thing to where it's, yeah. oh, okay, this is what we're going to work on. And there it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And do yeah. you, do you bring in the caregivers at this time as well, or people that know them well, family members to say almost maybe not necessarily in front of them, but just, you know, what differences do you see? You know, you knowing them so well before the incident, after what are the biggest differences or do you try to like, what level of it do you bring in family or caregivers at this time? The assessment. So we have to differentiate between COVID times and non-COVID yeah. times, unfortunately. In the before times, um, we had patients with family members spending every single night with them, you know, suitcase in the room with their loved one overnight for the duration of their stay. That's very, very uncommon now. And so I would say at least 75% of the time I'm doing an evaluation in the hospital setting, there isn't a family member there for me to ask those questions to. Um, sometimes I get lucky and they are there, especially when I'm doing weekends, um, but it, it is what it is. Um, in the before times, we there was almost always somebody there to ask those questions or to verify responses. So if somebody said like, well, I've got 18 patents and you know, the whole Disney company keeps calling me and I'm just like, eh, I'm kind of over it. And I'm like, huh? And the loved one's going, oh yeah, yeah, that's actually true. Okay, I can work <laughs> with that, but I need to know like, yeah. is this the brain injury talking or is this, you know, reality? Yeah, no, that's a great, I hadn't thought about how much COVID would have impacted that and that just, I feel sad hearing that because I'm thinking of how many times those patients that all of a sudden are having such a challenging time communicating rely so much on that person that knows yeah. them so well. And to not have that, I'm sure that feels challenging yeah. for you as a clinician because you don't have that yeah. lifeline, but also for them. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's getting a lot better now um, as Facilities are becoming more open to, you know, having visitors. And I'll, I will say this about working for Orlando Health as an organization. They have been fantastic about being really proactive at getting 
family members back in at the bedside. They've been really, really good about doing that as soon as it's safe yeah. and as soon as they have some good parameters on it. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that because I've had other clients come to UCF and they're telling me just a few weeks ago, no, nobody was allowed in the facility at all. My mm-hmm. mom has aphasia. She has a brain tumor and she was in the hospital for 10 days and we weren't even allowed past the front door. Oh my gosh. And I was like, but you don't understand. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't care. I had a PT tell me that she could do speech therapy on my mom. And I was like, "Mm, I'm going to pass on that because they weren't letting speech in the room. So like, these are the kinds of issues that are coming up post COVID, like not even so much, like, can we get corroborating information, Mm -hmm. but like, can we even get speech in the door? Sometimes some facilities aren't even letting care providers through the door. It's wow. beyond my comprehension. Wow. Yeah. So many layers to, to mm-hmm. this that have changed the way we yeah. practice and how things are done. So, yeah. well, and so once you get the information from this assessment and feel like you've got an idea of, okay, here's where the, the deficits are, here's where they're doing really well, here's how we want to make it practical. How do you then begin to develop the interventions? So one of the best ways to do that is through the WHO ICF framework interview. And that is basically this structured interview where you ask clients and patients how their lives are impacted by their stroke or their brain injury. How has it affected your ability to communicate with your family? What is important to you? What do you miss doing since having this happen? Um, how's it impaired? How's it impacted your body? What's different about your body? What do you miss doing? Um, and that information is like a gold mine. It's where you get everything you need to know about what you use going forward. So I had a lady who, um, was just passionate about her Bible studies. And that was something that she was just devastated. She could not participate in the way she used to. And so we got that information and we used that. So we worked on, we'd we'd get the passage in advance. We'd boil it down to what the main idea is. We'd practice reading it for fluency. We'd practice discussing what the meanings are. We'd use semantic feature analysis or phonological component analysis to pull information out of that and help her create that network so that she could get into that conversation and have something meaningful to share. Yeah. And then just like you said, that's meaningful to her. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious, what if they have their, their communication is such that they can't tell you what they've lost, what's important to them, what they want to do. How, what do you do then? Oftentimes I'll call the family. Okay. I'll try to reach out to the family to find out specifically. We also, so for example, if somebody is severely apraxic and they have a really hard time saying yes or no in a accurate way and a consistent way, um, a lot of times holding up hands and saying, okay, so this is my favorite for figuring out where somebody works. Do you work indoors or outdoors? And they can reach over and they can tap my hand and I would say almost every single time I've ever done that, I have figured out where a person has worked. Hmm. Oh, you work outside? Awesome. Do you work for a small company or a big company? Which one? 
And then we just keep narrowing it down from there. I, if I have a game night, I want you on my team. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really good at those. I just started playing Wordle and my kids are like, whoa, mom. And I'm like, this is literally what I do for a living. (laughs) Yes, I know. I'm thinking, oh, you'd be fun in a game night. Only if you're on my team. Now, so, and then do you also, if it's, let's say they don't understand the question, do you then know, okay, that's where we're going to start. If we can't even get to the a comprehension, then that's kind of, you'll say, yeah, we're going to start well, there. If somebody is a praxic, chances are good that they've got pretty solid comprehension because apraxia is up high mm-hmm. on the motor strip and auditory comprehension is further back. So I would be more concerned that there would be two sites of lesions or two sites of injuries if they are that apraxic and have that core of comprehension, or they're just severely brain injured from a TBI and they need something written down perhaps in keywords, like work question mark in big, bold black letters on a piece of paper and me just reading it with them. Work, where do you work? And then they'll usually make some sort of attempt. Um, but if there's, but if there's no information that they're able to convey, then yes, absolutely. We'll reach out to family. What I'm thinking too, even though it's frustrating that the family's not there, it probably, because then it's easy to find the information out with the families there. Whereas you both have to really work to get this information. And so it probably does give you a better idea. Let's say they don't have somebody that's going to be around them all day, every day. How are they going to communicate? So this actually lets you see, let's take away any support systems and see how you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So now we talked a little bit about aphasia. I'm curious as well, um, when you're doing a TBI, what is your preferred assessment for TBI? And again, what informal and formal pieces do you incorporate there? Yeah. So it depends on the severity of the TBI and it depends on a lot of factors with the patient and with the client. Um, I... I have a gentleman that my students and I are evaluating this week. We're using the R bands. Um, it's R B A N S. It's the repeatable, repeatable battery assessment for executive dysfunction. I think is the acronym, but anyway, R bands. Um, and it is a fantastic assessment that looks at working memory. It looks at processing. It looks at visual spatial deficits. It looks at at all those things. Um, and it's nice because it is repeatable. There are several different um, several, several different versions that you can compare side by side. Um, I like the T. It's the test of everyday assessment or uh, everyday attention. The only issue with that one is that if you do not know how to complete that test backwards and forwards, inside out, you will not make it through the administration. It is so challenging the first couple times you do it. But once you get a handle on it, it's great. Why is it challenging bats. just because it's so? Because there's this auditory component where you have to count these beeps oh. and it's like up, 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 down, down, down. And you have to learn what all the sounds mean. And it's incredibly overwhelming. The first time I practiced doing it at my dining table, I asked my then 15 year old to come over and I was like, just be my guinea pig for a minute. And she was like, mom you can't give this to a person with a brain injury. That'd be mean. I can't even do this. And I was like, babe, that's why I need you to do it because I need to practice. 
but it, it is really challenging, but it is an excellent test of finding where the, where the patchy parts are in somebody's attention. Um, I love the bads. It's the, um, don't quote me on any of those are what the, they stand for, but the bads, the T, the scat B, um, the R bands, um, and sometimes the click it, the CLQT. Um, all of those tests, just depending on what the patient or client needs. So if you feel like they're not going to be able to get through a full hour, then I'll usually do the click it with them because it takes about 25 minutes or so. And we can really easily pause and take breaks. And some of them are talking tasks. Some of them are writing tasks. So it breaks it up nicely where they can take a break from one or the other. Um, and then, of course, if their brain injury has anything to do with the left hemisphere, we'll typically go for a Western aphasia battery as well, because if we need to understand what their language capabilities are through the lens of their brain injury and understand their brain injury through the lens of any language deficits as well. And so do you have, do you, I mean, I'm just thinking there's so many choices and so, and you may not have a ton of information about them before beginning. Have you, do you sometimes ever okay, I'm going to have two ready. And if this is a complete bust, then we're going to switch to this one. Yep. Okay. Very frequently. I okay. have two, maybe three ready to go in my bag, just ready to hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. A lot of times also at the hospital, I'll pop in before their session when I know that they're in their bed or in their wheelchair and just introduce myself. Hi, I'm Angela. I'm here from speech. I just wanted to come introduce myself and let you know I'll be coming by later on. We'll be doing lots of thinking and memory and talking things. So let me know if you have any questions or concerns. How's rehab treating you? What therapies have you had today? And just kind of really, really informally assess what's happening and what they're capable of when I walk in the door unexpectedly. And then I can be a little bit more prepared when I'm doing the administration of a test. Yeah, that's a great suggestion because I'm sure yeah. just that brief <laughs> introduction gives you a lot of information where it's like, okay, what I was thinking we are not going to do, or yes. wow, they're really doing a whole lot better than I would have expected. So we're going to do this instead. Um, yeah. And what do you do informally with TBI? Um, a lot of times informally with TBI, I'll have a conversation with them. Tell me about what you do every day. Tell me about your family. Tell me about where you went to college. Where did you grow up? Um, and what I'm listening for is verbal organization. I'm listening for cohesion. I'm lis listening for any perseveration. Um, I'm listening for them to maybe get frustrated. I'm, I'm also watching them to see how they're managing the light and the noise because so many times with the TBI, they can have photophobia or otophobia. And we, we want to be careful with that because the worst thing in the world is to feel like you have these bright, bright lights shining in your eyes and like crazy noise in your ears. So we do our best to help them manage that and then explain to them, Hey, this is, this is also, also a very common part of recovering from a brain injury. It will get better. Um, so informally, those are the kinds of things that I'm looking for. Also, a lot of times, especially with TBI, I'm looking at how they're eating. Um, because a lot of times with especially frontal TBIs, we're going to notice that they guzzle a lot of liquids 
and just prefer to drink. It's probably one of the biggest concerns families present is why are they only drinking red fruit punch? We don't drink that at home. We drink water at home. We don't, we barely even drink coffee. Why is he obsessed on the red fruit punch? I actually had that happen a couple of years ago. <laughs> and I was like, don't worry. We'll get through it. If this is what he's drinking right now, let's just not worry about it. Let him, let's just let him drink it. And let's try working on getting him to eat more because you know, as humans, we are evolved to be as lazy as possible and utilize the least amount of effort to meet our needs. And so to get that sensation of a full stomach, all you got to do is fill up on 32 ounces of liquid. And, whew, you're going to be full. You don't have to chew. It's a lot easier. That's so interesting. So, I'm thinking about this gentleman that I worked with it, years and years and years ago um, in inpatient. And he, I came to see him one morning and he had been sent back to the main hospital because he was drinking so much water that he put his body, he, it, it was it very, really put himself at huge risk because he drank mm -hmm. so much Throughout water. Throughout his electrolytes. Yes, that yep. he was very sick and he didn't come back for several days. And then that was something yeah. they had to monitor of not yeah. allowing the water. Is that more of an, I at the time thought it was more of an impulsivity piece. But it sounds like there may be more be. to it. Yeah, I mean, there can be a lot of components to it. And, and, you know, as we know, the body goes through dramatic changes when it is experienced trauma. So somebody might have diabetes pop up when they're in the hospital after a brain injury when they never had diabetes before because of the way the body is processing all of the nutrients, which is, you know, why it's so important for speech to work closely with the dietary team and the nursing staff, because it is such a multifaceted issue mm -hmm. um, of getting that PO intake to be appropriate and valuable for what that person needs. Um, so yeah, we, we will oftentimes have people who are just guzzling their liquids and the best sometimes we can do is get it to be like an insurer mm -hmm. or a milkshake or, I mean, you name it up. If it's calories, let's get it in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I coach a lot of family members through, you know, how to make a smoothie that is going to be nutritionally sound. Like, don't just go through the drive-thru and grab a milkshake, if at all possible. But if that's all they're going to eat or drink, then let's, like, let's just get them something. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'll we'll work through that sometimes, too. Yeah. Especially when, the, when we're working with a burn patient who also has a brain injury because burns are just so calorie heavy in recovery. Gosh, that sounds like it would be the, the two things you don't want combined together. Yeah, so it's rough. Yeah. That's, yeah. so once you have done the assessment for TBI, what are some of your favorite ways to incorporate intervention with this population? So one of the things that I really, really love to do if I'm working with somebody who's had a traumatic brain injury, let's say, for example, we write the goal, the patient will maintain sustained attention for five consecutive minutes when given setup and no more than one cue. And let's say in 75% of opportunities. So in that situation, I'll literally write it down on a piece of paper in front of them, provided their vision is intact or marginally intact even and say, all right, five minutes and put my phone in front of them with the timer going and re 
set them up and say, listen, we're going to do this one thing for five minutes. It's all we have to do. Let's just get through it. We're going to do our best to do that. And then we're going to take a two minute break. And so whether that means conversation about their pet, their children, their work, whether it means um, naming objects, whether it means it, it could literally be anything. As long as it's going for that five minutes set of time or three minutes, shoot, I've had 30 seconds before <laughs> as the goal because yeah. their attention has been so profoundly impaired. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just as long as we're, we're, you know, working within the parameters of it and just really making sure that they're set up for it appropriately. I use set up a lot in my goals when given set up and blank because it reminds me and it reminds whomever else might be utilizing those particular goals to target what that client or patient's needs are, that we need to tell this person, this is what we're doing and this is how long we're doing it for. And this is why, because rationale is such a big deal to create buy-in. So that's what you mean by setup is they are aware of, here is a summary of what we're going to be doing and what we're going to be looking to accomplish so that they go into it knowing yeah. This is, this is what we're doing and this is why we're yes. doing it. Okay. Provided they can handle it. If yes. they're like a rancho six, seven or higher. Yeah. Absolutely. Ranchos four and five. Heck no. Yeah. Heck no. The job, the job with a ranchos four is don't get hit. <laughs> if they're that wild. <laughs> um, and the object of a rancho's five is keep them oriented as long as possible. Keep them on task as long as possible. You know, keep working on things to help bringing them further and further away from the four rather than working them closer to the four. Because mm-hmm. the rancher's four is the hardest to, four is by far the most challenging stage of, of traumatic brain injury recovery. Just because they're it's, so, like you said, it sounds like uh, more aggressive. Yeah. Uh, just yeah, labile, and, like, yeah, just, okay. And, you know, the way I explain it to family members who are usually appalled at their loved one's mm-hmm. behavior, like they would never do this in real life. Oh my God, why is he doing this? I mean, I have seen some things <laughs> <laughs> and I have had to pull family members aside over yeah. many, many years and say, listen, yeah. this is not your, this is not Joe doing the talking here. This is his brain on fire trying to recover from this injury. Mm-hmm. And it's sending signals that just don't make any sense to us. So don't judge it. Don't like focus in on it. Let's work with it. Yeah. Hey, you're like, and also I've seen this <laughs> a million times. This is not, none of us are shocked. It it's, it's appalling yes. to you, but we're, this isn't yes. shaking any of us up. So, yeah. So like, yeah. In a, let's say for example, this is a really good example. So talking, let's say for example, I was talking to a new grad who's working in a acute or subacute setting and they have a brain injured person who is inappropriately utilizing their hands for self-stimulation. You follow? I hear you. I get okay. it. I'm following. It happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right? I have. Yes. I've, it, I've seen it, this it myself. Yes. When nothing in the world feels good, yeah. we're going to do what feels good. I yeah. have one guy who wouldn't stop picking his nose for yeah. like a month. Others who enjoy the downstairs region. That's, you know, it just is. The best way to handle that is, hey, can you do me a favor? Will you lift up your arms real quick? Awesome. I'm going to just put this table right here because we're going to do some writing. So create a distraction and a barrier so that they don't have the same access to their body 
so that they're more socially appropriate mm -hmm. and are not creating this, you know, perpetual feedback loop of this feels good. I want to do it more. Yeah. This feels good. I'm going to keep doing it more. Yeah. You know, at that point, just hand them a pen and call it a day and call it their pen and, you know, get them to start writing or drawing or doing something. And then say, so that, and then they get to keep the pen. You say, I don't know. I don't need that back. Oh, no, no, no. That's yours. <laughs> Just keep it. Write anything down if you have any yeah. questions that you think of. <laughs> that's yours forever. <laughs> yes. No, no. It was my favorite pen, but not anymore. <laughs> I don't need that back. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you almost, if you... The basic is starting at attention because I, I'm thinking about just the pediatric patients I've worked with where it, if they don't have attention, then they're not available to learn anything else. So it sounds like if they're, if that's not intact, that has to be a, a starting place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's going to be times where you just can't get the attention online. And so in that case, you just have to really switch gears and mm -hmm. figure out what can we do in this moment? Maybe we need to go outside. Yeah. Maybe we need to go into the family room that has carpet and mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like a hospital. Maybe we need to, I mean, shoot, I had a guy a couple of months ago where all I did was stay in the room for seven minutes before he kicked me out. And the second time I tried to see him, him tolerating my presence. Mm -hmm was what we were working on because he was so agitated. Yeah. There was only one or two people he would let into the room. Mm -hmm. It's intense. Yeah. And it is, it's it with the brain. I mean, it can there again, there's no two that are the same. Yeah. And, I, and I'm thinking between aphasia and TBI. I mean, my thought is, Oh, it seems that aphasia would be easier to treat that it would present more, maybe a little bit more cut and dry than TBI. But is that, correct or, or not at all? Um, it just, it really depends on the person. Gotcha. It really, really depends on the person. I've had some stroke patients who have been incredibly challenging to work with because they thought they were fine or didn't care, or they just kind of rolled over and they're like, Good night. Mm -hmm. Not doing this. Yeah. And then I've had some TBI patients who are just like, no, you tell me what to do. I'm going to do this thing so I can get better and I can go back to my real life. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'm like, please, please, please don't get on a motorcycle again. Like, please, please, please. And they're like, oh, I'll wear a helmet next time. And I'm like, oh my God, no. <sighs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. we can't change everything. No, but we can certainly help. <laughs> yes. You're saying, tell me yeah. exactly where in what vicinity you ride so I can avoid that area <laughs> if that's the choice that you decide to make. So, yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, I live on this main road that goes straight to the university and I Friday nights and Saturday nights, I typically don't drive down yeah. this road because it's, it's just, it's rough. Yeah. It's really bad. I've actually treated a couple people who've been injured in DUI accidents oh. on this road. Yeah. I remember a professor that always would say, you know, would she'd see somebody without a helmet or doing something that was not, probably not going to have a good outcome. She'd say yeah. job stability, job stability. That's right. Job and security right like, there. Yeah. Job security. My kids even say that yeah. when they see somebody with like a helmet on the side of their motorcycle, they're like, Oh, Hey, look, mom, it's one of your future patients. And I'm like, God, I really hope not. They're like, let's hope not. Please don't. I know. But yeah. It, yeah. It drives me crazy. 
So I, I do a lot of preaching about the use of helmets mm -hmm. and safety and distracted driving yeah. and just like protect your brain. It's the yeah. only one you got. That's I say to my kids all the time. You only have one brain. You only have, you have two arms, two legs, but you have one brain. So, yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to hurt it. So, yeah. well, and besides doing your work at the university and at the hospital, you also are very unique in that you have a private practice, mm -hmm. um, and work with these populations in your own practice. So I'd love to know a little bit about that. And what was your motivation for starting that in addition to all those other things you're already doing? <laughs> so my motivation in starting it was I wanted to have complete freedom to do it my way on my timeline with my availability and the patient or the client's availability and not be limited by scheduling or be limited by insurance. So at this point I'm self-pay only. I'm not accepting any insurances. I'll provide super bills if you want to, you know, re mm -hmm. send it into your insurance company for your reimbursement. But my big, big factor is that family support because you can go to a therapist. I mean, I've been doing therapy for 20 years, like, you know, psychosocial therapy mm -hmm. and it will help you, but you can't sit down and look at a therapist in the eyes and say, so my son has a traumatic brain injury. My daughter has a traumatic brain injury. My husband, my, my mother has a brain tumor. Help me deal with the behaviors that are specifically associated with that. And so being able to troubleshoot and say to a spouse or a, a child or a partner, you know, anybody, okay, so these are the things that are happening. Let's try this as a solution instead of just keep doing things the way you always have, because mm -hmm. their brain is working differently. Mm -hmm. It's almost like, it's almost like being there stand in for a few minutes to be able to say, this isn't working. Let's try it doing it that way. But these these family members aren't able to have those conversations with their loved ones who've had the brain injuries, who've had the strokes. Um, a client that I recently saw, um, the family, they kept putting newspapers in front of him and they were, you know, they were, they were asking all these yes, no questions, just drilling. Yes, no, yes, no questions. Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Is the lights on or are the lights on? Is the grass blue? You know, um, do you drive a bike? Do you ride a car? Like things like that. And he's so far beyond that. So helping families to tweak what it is that they're doing in between those therapy sessions mm -hmm. is really, really like, that's my number one goal because you don't know what you don't know. And if you're going by information that was given to you several months ago, it may not, it may not be relevant any longer. It may not be effective any longer. And we have to constantly evolve and change with the recovery, with the brain injury, with the stroke and meet those challenges where they are rather than where they were, mm -hmm. because that's going to build a lot of resentment and frustration between everybody. Like, why do you keep asking me these questions? I always tell you the same answers. They're always right. But the other person's like, well, I don't know what else to do. That's where I come in. Yeah. So it sounds like two really important reasons was, you know, the, like you said, that you can make 
different decisions about what treatment will look like because you're not having to make them based on, okay, insurance is only going to pay for this many visits. And so we've got to do this, even though it's, I always felt like it was interesting when I was doing the inpatient work where I felt that feeling where they'd say, well, if they don't make this progress by this time, then they're out of here. And I always felt like, but if yes. they're out of here and they just start to make progress, everybody's not going to make progress at the exact same time in the exact same way. So this sounds like it allows you to really tailor the therapy sessions to yes. where they're at, where they're going. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, these decisions don't have to be made based on payment. Yes, correct. And, and alternatively, like the opposite of what you just said. Oh, they made such amazing gains so quickly. We're sending them home and you're like, whoa, we were just getting started. No, we have so much more to do and they're yeah. gone because they can walk. Yeah. Yeah. And therapist's hands are tied. I mean, it's not, mm -hmm. you know, they're in, in how they, I mean, you know, you see it on, in all different settings, but where it, it you know, comes down, down to funding. So I love that you, yeah saw that and said, I don't, I don't like the way that's working. So here's what I'm going to do about it. But yeah. also being able to incorporate that caregiver support, which it sounds like yes. that's just a huge part, if not the most important part of that therapeutic process with your patients and your private practice. As far as I'm concerned, that is the number one most important part. In addition to the patient's motivation, mm -hmm. if I've got a client or a patient who's motivated, that's that's half the game right there. The other half is getting that key family member or a couple of family members properly trained on how to use an intervention to best help that person. So um, this last session um, with this particular family, I introduced semantic feature analysis. And I just, I very, very briefly like eyeballed the house as I walked in the door and I knew a few things about their background history because of intake paperwork. And I immediately created this list of several different words that we started working on. You know, what does it remind you of? Where do you find it? What does it look like? What are the properties? Who uses it? Like all these different components of it. And all of a sudden you start hearing him saying short sentences, like, my ledger's in the office and the family members go, and they looked at me and they said, you're like a magician. I said, no, I'm not a magician. I'm a highly skilled therapist and I know my stuff mm -hmm. and I'm teaching you so that you can help him. Mm -hmm. Like once the shock wore off, cause they hadn't heard his voice in months. Wow. Yeah. Now, how do you, so because that's such an important part of your of, of this therapy is having caregiver buy-in. Mm -hmm. Do you do almost a interview with the caregiver or that person to be beforehand to make sure that they, it, this is not, I'm coming in with my magic wand. And while you sit in the yeah. other room, that this is a us team process to see yeah. if they're going to be involved the way that they yeah. need to. I, I usually explain it that one hour of therapy per week is, I think it's 0.87% of our week. Hmm. It's not even one full percent. And so I oftentimes tell them it's like being on a diet for one hour a week. 
if your goal is to be in a bodybuilding competition, it's not going to get you there. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to see the fruits of this labor, then you have to do this work every single day. Mm-hmm. And I'm training you on it. I'll train you as many times as often as you need me or want me to, that's fine. But as long as you're making the effort, because we really, really need an all in approach on this. We cannot look at this and say, oh, well, he had the stroke. This is his problem. He'll fix it. No. Aphasia doesn't happen to one person. Mm -hmm. A brain injury does not happen to one person. And I can tell you from personal experience, a brain tumor does not happen to one person either. It is a whole family ripple Mm -hmm. effect. So it's intense. It's really, really intense. And, you know, having those, those family members who are so supportive and willing to learn and willing to change their approach is so important. Yeah. I've had to do that even with my mom, where when she was first diagnosed, I very much was like, therapist hat, I rock, I'm going to help her with this thing. And then I was like, wait a minute. And I got a lot of feedback from colleagues. They were like, Angela, be her daughter. Don't be her therapist. Hmm. I was like, oh, fine. <laughs> and so now when she and I are on the phone and she's doing something, mom, what are you doing? I'm, I'm putting my clothes in this thing what thing are you putting it in? You know, the thing that you put your clothes in when you're going somewhere. Oh, a suitcase. Yes. that. You know, so I'll, I'll use those skills every once in a while, but I don't think I'm using them in any way that any other trained family member couldn't use them. Mm-hmm. And is that something you discuss with your patients and their family member too, so that it does not create a environment with them, whether it's like, Oh, the, she just keeps nagging me about doing this work. Um, and do you almost set up ground rules in the beginning of what this would look like and how it's a support versus, uh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean it always happens. I'm sure, but (laughs) I I have absolutely had to make ground rules in the past with some family members. Um, and then on the other hand, I've had to beg other family members Mm -hmm. to be involved. So I really kind of play that by ear. And I see how their interactions are going. And I ask the client for feedback as well. Like, Hey, how's it going? Are they driving you crazy or are they doing a good job? And they know, they know if their loved ones are doing a good job or not. And, and I would say most of the time they say, no, 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 they're good. They're good. Okay. "Okay, You tell me if there's a problem and I'll help them fix it. Yeah. No, I think that's the back off. (laughs) <laughs> but it probably is like a constant reevaluation. How is this yeah. going? How is the support? How is, yes. well, and I, I mean, it just, all that it does, I'm thinking is, you know, you have all this great experience working in outpatient, inpatient and, but then knowing, but realizing how critical that caregiver support piece is so much so that you went out on your own and that's the premise behind this. is. And so that just reinforces how critical it is because like you said, it's one hour a week is it's not going to accomplish a lot. Yeah. So that's not where progress happens. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Um, I was going to say that, um, it's, it's one of those things that I definitely am constantly evaluating as time goes on. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm just so passionate about and the research supports it. All yeah. the research, whether you're looking at PT, OT, speech, mm-hmm. neuropsych, I mean, basically any research 
As long as there is family education and true understanding, it furthers the patient's progress. And it also, if you're looking at research related to caregiver burden and caregiver stress, it really does a huge number on reducing that caregiver burden and stress. And having a stroke or a brain injury is one of, for a family member, is one of the most stressful experiences a family could ever yeah. have happened to them. Yeah. No, it changes the entire dynamic of the family, everything. Yeah. And I, I think that's just such a great reminder to everybody too, about how critical it is, regardless of who you're working with or what you're doing, having that caregiver family support and buy-in is because I know that that's also by feeling like you're doing something and being proactive, it does help you have a focus and not, yeah. I could see that being just more meaningful, like, okay, today we're accomplishing this today. We're doing this versus yeah. feeling helpless by not doing anything. Yeah. And who knows them best? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I've, I'm, I'm reading a chart and I'm walking in a room or I'm reading a chart and meeting them at the door and introducing mm -hmm. myself. I don't know their, you know, the nuances yeah. that their spouses or parents or, you know, best friend or children or anybody no, and so by capitalizing on that, mm. we have a way of making just so much more headway than if we did it all in the bubble and we used, you know, our our little word bank that you know we use for everybody, mm -hmm. and everybody gets the same twenty words when we're doing semantic feature analysis, or we use the same pictures if we're doing confrontational naming, and that's that does not work for me. Yeah, and it no. doesn't work for patients. Well, good for you for recognizing that Thanks. and, and taking that big step to, to do something about it. You yourself yeah. were proactive about that. Yeah. Well, so you've accomplished a lot. You've done a lot. What is next for you professionally going forward? What's still to come? So I am currently in the process of writing up my case studies so that I can become ANCDS certified. Um, and so that is, it's basically the, one of the only certifications that we can get that say, Hey, you have a enormous body of experience in neurological disorders. Um, and then also working towards my certified brain injury specialist accreditation as well. Um, I have a stack of note cards about this thick that I need to keep studying before I schedule my test. Um, so those are my two next big things that are on the horizon. Um, I had a couple people reach out to me wanting to join me in my private mm -hmm. practice. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> or students. Do you ever take on students? I don't have a caseload big enough for okay. that yet, but I absolutely, if I were to have mm -hmm. a caseload that big, I absolutely would. I, I value the mentor and mentee experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I'm a good mentor. Um, I've learned from some exceptional mentors over the course of my career, and I've learned from some terrible mentors over the course of my career. And, you know, sometimes we have to learn what's terrible so that we can become better and yeah. never do those things. Yeah. It's just so, it's important to know what to do as what not to do. Yes, exactly. Yes. I, I tell people that frequently when yeah. they get their assignments, 
my students get their assignments for their part-time or their full-time externships. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, listen, I know, I know, I get it. I did one that was mm-hmm. not my interest area. It was like the polar opposite of my interest area. And that's okay. Yeah. Sometimes we really just have to grit our teeth, bear it, and learn about what we don't want yep. in order to really appreciate what we do. Could not agree more. Well, and I encourage people as well to go to your website, which I think the name is so cute and clever, A to Z uh, Therapy. Um, A to Z SLP. That's what I was going to say. I feel like it was, yes, A to Z SLP, which is your initials, which I think is so cute, uh, again, and clever. But Angela, it has just been a pleasure. I feel like I could just keep you here all night and (laughs) make you talk to us. But I know that uh, you also have a a life to get back to, but I really just value all that you've done and just really um, learned a lot from you today. And I was just thinking, I would have loved to have you as a mentor. So Um, yeah, but thank thank you you for all of your insight and your passion for what you do. And um, your patients are lucky to have you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been just so much fun. And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning into SLP Full Disclosure. For more information about this episode, check out the show notes on our website at medtravelers.com slash SLP Full Disclosure. And don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss a guest. Are you interested in becoming a travel SLP? Visit medtravelers.com to learn more and explore the exciting opportunities we offer at top-level facilities across the country. Also, a special thanks to Jonathan Carey for producing this episode and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. And as always, this episode was powered by Med Travelers. See you next time.